You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hello, folks. This is Tommy's Outdoors 46. And I must say, this is a milestone episode for me, personally. You probably heard a dozen of times that I'm a semi-retired, super passionate shark angler. And ever since I started this podcast, I wanted one day to have someone from Shark Trust on the podcast. Well, that day is today. Our guest is Ali Hood, a director of conservation in Shark Trust, and we spent over an hour talking sharks. I was especially happy to be able to talk with Ali about the role of anglers in shark conservation, as well as discuss three species of shark that are particularly interesting to me, orbigal shark, sixgill shark, and mako shark. But there's a ton more of what we discussed, and uh, it's all very interesting. So if you want to learn more about sharks and conservation of these important creatures, crack open a can of your favorite beverage, sit back, and listen up. Ali Hood, welcome to the show. Hi, Tommy. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate your time uh, being with us here. You are a uh, director of conservation in Shark Trust. Yeah, that's correct. And Shark Trust is uh, particularly close to my heart because I must say that my um, involvement in in conservation and kind of getting involved and doing something for nature started with Shark Trust, really. 10 years ago. So maybe you will uh, tell us, you know, from, from directly from the director of conservation, what is Shark Trust and what Shark Trust does? What is the Shark Trust team? My goodness, that's, that's, that's a very big question, actually, because for a compact team of people, we have um, a really significant global footprint. Um, but the, the intention of the Shark Trust is to safeguard the future of sharks skates and rays, so when I say shark, I'm generally meaning all elasmobranch fish, um, through science, education, influence and action. And the science is a very important thing there. All of our work is underpinned by science. That is what gives us the informed positions through which we work. Um, we deliver on sort of three key pillars of activity. Um, we are an organisation that strives towards sustainable fisheries where possible. Um, but really ensuring that effective science-based catch limits are in place for all shark, skate and ray fisheries um, as required. We work for wildlife protection for those species of sharks that really need that added layer, um, that really precautionary approach. Um, there's a very interesting sort of tangent there that we could take later in our conversation to look at the difference between sharks that are treated as wildlife and those that are treated um, as perhaps a fisheries commodity. And um, on that line, we also work on issues of responsible consumption and trade. So our work takes us from engaging in citizen science activities here um, in the UK and Ireland on, on beaches or with the angling community um, through into engaging with other organisations in citizen science activities around the world to domestic fisheries, working on international wildlife treaties and um, particularly high seas fisheries management. 
the high seas make up an enormous um, percentage of our global ocean. Um, I, I did a piece of work earlier um, this week, actually, that looked at the fact that I think it's 64 percent of the surface of the ocean is high seas, thus beyond jurisdiction of any country, and by volume, 95 percent. So our work on high seas fisheries issues is particularly important. Yeah, and it's particularly hard to enforce, I would imagine, any any regulations because it's like, you know, like we, we, we've seen and surely people who, who are uh, following, uh, what's, what's his name, Animal Planet series on, on uh, whale wars, I guess, was the, was the, was the, how hard it is to enforce anything mm. at the high seas because it's like, you know, it's costly to get there. There is really vast areas and a lot of illegal activities are going on on the, on the high seas. Well, so yes, I mean, high, high seas waters are, are difficult to manage. They are a long way from shore. But there are bodies called regional fisheries management organizations, the RFMOs, who do have a remit for the management of these areas. And sharks come under their um, their purview. Um, so what we do as an organization working with our colleagues in the Shark League is to seek binding recommendations to have legal requirements for the nations that fish in these high seas areas. Uh -huh. And for example, in the Atlantic, we attend meetings of ICAT, um, that's the International um, Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuners, where we can work mm. with over 50 nations in one go to see the adoption of legal requirements for management for our shark species that are um, caught in those waters. Now, that's no mean feat. It's consensus decision making. Everybody has to agree. Um, but it is a route through which those high seas areas can be managed um, and at times managed, hopefully effectively. But is it sometimes happen that there that there is like one particular government that says like, well, no, I don't care. I'm not working with you and they do whatever they want. Unfortunately, yes. Um, but you know, one of the one of the very positive things about being based here in Europe mm -hmm. is, um, and this might sound slightly odd, Europe is one of the largest shark fishing entities um, in the world. Yes, thanks for, for thanks for sharing that because that's that's a yeah. thing, that's a that's a seldom known fact that actually I know. Europe catches the most sharks in the commercial yeah. fisheries. And this is, you know, people often say to us, why is the shark trust not working um, in the Far East? Why are you not looking at the fin trade, for example, in China? Well, simply because Europe is one of the greatest and largest suppliers of, of shark, of shark fin, of shark meat into these trades. And so, you know, we need to, to work to get our own house in order. We do have legal frameworks through um, the European Commission, through the 28 member states, through which to see effective fisheries management and shark finning regulation actually enacted and enforced. Um, and so it's really, you know, we, we have an opportunity through Europe to see laws change. And they have changed over the last few decades. We've seen great improvements in shark finning regulation. Um, we have a fins naturally attached policy, which is extremely valuable. And this is mandated by the European Commission now. They now push this message and this need out through all of these high seas fisheries bodies where the majority of these species um, within the fin trade are caught. But we also then on our doorstep have those nations who are catching the most um, sharks and particularly um, Spain, Portugal, 
historically um, France was a larger land of the UK. Um, and so, you know, we have um, the ability to directly engage with those nations who really are catching the most um, sharks and many of them with no limits, uh, with no catch limits in place. Especially the fins naturally attach. It's it's some it's it's fantastic because it's something that I feel like it it, it happened. You know, I kind of could see through um, your information campaign how you how Shark Trust was campaigning for that and how how this actually happened. And and you mentioned that there's a you guys are like a small group of people uh, based in Plymouth. I think that's 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 how you pronounce the name, right? Like the, Plymouth. Yep. Yeah. Plymouth. And, uh, but you have like a truly global reach. How, how did that happen? How, how, how you achieved that? Well, not alone is the key thing there. So um, in, in all of these instances, collaboration is key. Um, I mentioned on the high seas, we work as part of the Shark League. That's a collaboration of Shark Advocates International, the Ecology Action Center and Project AWARE. We work as part of the Global Sharks and Rays Initiative. Um, again, a fantastic collaboration of some really, um, you know, well-known organizations, including WWF, WCS, the IUCN Shark Specialist Group, um, Shark Advocates International and Traffic. It's really important that we work together. But with regards to the finning regulation, um, in 2003, when the original shark fin European shark finning regulation was adopted, there was a very small set of organizations working on this. Um, we then, through 2006 to 2013, um, became a, a founder member of a collaboration, um, a campaign known as the Shark Alliance, yes. which brought together, you know, over a hundred organisations of varying sizes across Europe, from very passionate dive groups through to science-based organisations, large NGOs. And we all worked in a very concerted effort towards securing this best practice in shark finning regulation. That is requiring that sharks are landed with their fins still naturally attached to their bodies. And so in that case, the carcass must come ashore still with the fins. They can be partially cut and then flapped against the carcass to ease storage. But it means that for an enforcement officer, they can go on board a vessel. If a shark has no fins, then that is an infraction of the law. And it allows us to identify species far better, leading to um, more informed fisheries management decisions. Prior to that point, it was there was massive loopholes within the, the shark finning regulation. You could land your fins into one port, you could land your carcasses into another port, oh, yeah. and it really relied on scrupulous um, skippers keeping good logbooks um, and as a result, left a, a gap for unscrupulous operations. Um, the generous, what we call fin to carcass ratio, meant that more fins could be landed than carcasses and you would still legally be within, um, within that limit. So best practice, landing sharks with their fins naturally attached, allows us then to move towards effective shark fisheries management, uh, which is really essential and something was adopted in the Mediterranean last year, which was a, a really fantastic success. Um, so collaboration is always key, working together towards these shared objectives. Is that is that the uh, kind of like a main, um, I suppose, uh, way of operating by Shark Trust? Because what I think personally uh, is that Shark Trust is sort of a 
gold standard how uh, NGOs should operate um, because you know I, I, I feel like you you're doing everything right uh, the informa- the amount of information of what you do is is actually very good and that information is very accessible so as a member I can always see what you're up to what you're doing what the, what are the, the actions that you're taking you collaborating with a lot of with a lot of organizations your i think your social media channels are absolutely great because they're they're informative they're positive you're like like i like to say you're not spending time being angry on twitter the opposite <laughs> this is this is like a positive message every time reinforced and is 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 like how do, how are you guys doing that? You 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 know it seems like you you probably was would hire like an army of consultants and people to manage the PR. <laughs> I wish no. There's there's um, I'm just doing a quick count on how many we are now. We're eight staff. There's four in the conservation team. Um, we we how do we do this? A lot of coffee and biscuits. Um, no, but it's an incredibly dedicated team of people and thank you that's a, a, a huge compliment to our whole team everything that you've just said there but you'll also appreciate that the creation of accessible information isn't easy uh, yeah. we, we work in a very very complicated area of of fisheries management of multiple nations involved of complicated policy frameworks and to digest that and and produce it in a manner that 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 people who who aren't in the sector can understand Mm -hmm. is is a challenge but something that's essential because people do get confused and understandably very easily the difference between shark finning and the removal of shark fins at sea and shark fin bans and you see these errors creeping into newspaper articles Mm -hmm. into television programs into online content Um, and so it's really important that we um, continue to, to clarify those points um, to, to our supporters and to people beyond that, because otherwise a lot of these conversations happen at cross purposes and yeah. uh, we need everybody moving in the same direction. Um, with regards to how we deal with our, our social media, we feel that we do have a responsibility to ensure that people understand the facts behind the position. So if a shark is landed, it may well be landed perfectly legitimately. You as a, as a supporter or as a, an, an individual may have a, an ethical or moral view of whether that was right or wrong. But people can get particularly emotional about these things. And so mm-hmm. it's really important that we give the facts and we say, look, that shark was legitimately landed. Um, here are the regulations that would cover, say, if we talk about thresher sharks, you can't land big eye thresher, but you can land common thresher. Yeah. Um, the important thing is to understand what species are we looking at, what is what's the legality behind it, and then start a dialogue with people to help them understand um, perhaps why one is relevant and the other isn't. Yes. So in general, would, would, how would you say if the if the uh status of sharks and and in in general alaska branch species are uh like we know that in general nature is in trouble right everything Uh is in decline and so on decline and so on and so on but how you would describe the current status is is it is it hopeful or is it like (laughs) damage limitation and it's not gonna happen like how does it how how how, what's your view on that um (laughs) 
personally, we always have to be hopeful because working in this sector, if you can't look at things and be have belief that things can change, then to be honest, you wouldn't come into work in the morning. Um, so it's really important to maintain an optimism and a belief that you can change things. Um, what is the status for sharks? It's really, really concerning. Um, you know, they are amongst the most threatened vertebrate species, full stop, um, not just in the oceans, but on the oceans, in the land. Um, over 25% of elasmobranchs are in a threat category. Um, you know, the, the status of many species, as we've seen from recent IUCN red list reassessments that have been released, we're seeing some of our species decline um, their status uh, on the red list so whether they're endangered critically endangered or, or possibly you know least concern that would be a great thing um, but we are seeing and this is where we have to, to focus as well we are seeing species who through effective fisheries management are showing some signs of recovery so we have seen species whose populations have um, started to return and one of the things we must be careful of um, working in conservation is, is to not only focus on, on the negative, on the species who are in the threat category, who are endangered, but also to, to make time for those species where we see and celebrate yeah. um, those species where we see populations improving. Now, I said earlier in our conversation that we, as an organisation, work towards sustainable fisheries. Mm -hmm. And if we see a population that can improve, uh, to a level at which a sustainable take is is um, possible, then that we see that as a positive. Um, sharks are caught; they are caught in mixed fisheries. This is an unavoidable truth, yes. um, and so we need to therefore see that they are managed as effectively as possible. And you know that that takes us down a route of some people's view that all shark fishing should be prohibited. But we must understand that prohibiting something doesn't mean it's not caught and doesn't mean there isn't mortality. And so the Shark Trust view is to work at the mortality end of that scale, working with the fishing industry to reduce the mortality in various ways so that we can see those populations have a chance to recover. Yeah. Um, and again, this speaks to the issue of our sharks wildlife or commercial commodities. And, you know, there are a number of species in our waters here in the northeast Atlantic, which are critically endangered and they reach that point due to unmanaged fishing activities yeah. um, so we must now work to ensure the highest levels of protection and avoidance and whether it's behavior change to ensure if they're, they're caught that they're returned as effectively and safely as possible you know there's many many elements to this and ways in which um, the public can be involved ways in which the commercial fisheries um, are involved and ways in which we need government legislation to give us that tool in which to ensure um, those species can be yeah. given the best opportunity. What's an example of a, of a species that's recovered or is starting to recover? Um, we've seen recovery of, or starting, you know, a, a tentative recovery of certain um, skate and ray species. In the US, there's examples of a spiny dogfish population, which has mm -hmm. recovered, although there is new science suggesting that recovery may not have been quite as um, robust as initially thought. So that there's, there's all sorts of um, often more 
tentative indications. Um, but the key thing is that if you don't have catch limits for species, there is no chance for that population to either be fished at a sustainable level or um, or recover. So this is why you know those species that are targeted and retained or targeted um, and, and are unwanted by catch, they all need management in some form. Yeah, I think that you have to be incredibly positive person, like you mentioned, because you're obviously passionate about sharks and you love sharks, and yet you working in a setting where you um, talking about, oh yeah, you can land sharks, but the fin attached and so on and so on. Is, is it mm -hmm. hard? Um, I mean, I like, is it part of you that would like to, you know, say, say, go and say, like, well, leave sharks alone. Don't, don't do anything to them. <laughs> Let them recover. I think um, one of the important things, and I might be strung up for next, is that um, I, I'm a marine biologist by training, and sharks are the species that I work for. Um, our, our members and our supporters, they have that sort of luxury of, of having that that pure passion for sharks. Um, I have to take a more scientific approach to this issue. If we walked into a meeting with purely an emotive argument, mm -hmm. um, we would lose that position very rapidly. If we walk into a meeting with the best available science informing our, our positions, then we have far more chance of achieving success and getting the management or the protection that we need for that species. And so we must look at things however um, at times, yes, heartbreaking things can be. Um, we must stick to that scientific perspective because it's through that science that we can achieve the most effective fisheries management or wildlife protection, depending on on the species we're discussing. Mm -hmm. And is that is that in like a feel of need of that kind of science-based factual approach made you start the uh, get involved in shark tests? How how did you become? Uh, you know, member of a shark trust. It seems like a dream job. Um, I was previously working here in Plymouth at the Marine Biological Association of the United Kingdom, and um, the job opportunity came up. Um, I remember sitting in a, a very wet, windy car park writing my application for the post. Um, <laughs> my partner was out kite surfing. I'd have loved to have been out kite surfing, um, but I had this job application to write, and it was it was. One of those things, you know, that was back in 2002. I'm still here. I'm still being challenged on a daily basis with the work that we deliver. And the remit of the trust and the team of the Shark Trust has grown over time um, to, to be what we are today. And um, it's, it's fantastic. I, I am so pleased that that opportunity came up and that um, things aligned for me to to have the, the, the job that I have today. Uh, I'm, uh, you, you're doing a great job, and I think we are lucky, and sharks are lucky that that opportunity came up and you decided you know, to write your application in that, in that, in that, <laughs> well, that Thank day. you, Tommy, but it, it is a team, team, massively team effort. So, um, and, as, you know, and as we've already discussed, it, it's also very much about those, those organizations that we partner with. Yeah. Um, yes. And we were talking about the Shark Alliance. Some of those organizations mm -hmm. were very passion-driven. Some of them are science base um but we we meet some phenomenal people in our travels but do you think like, like do you think that having that uh too passionate uh, uh, approach sometimes may be counter counterproductive right 
I think I think it can be, and this is why we like to present um, aspects of our work. For example, the need for catch limits for blue shark and short-term mako on the high seas. Mm. Um, this is our no limits campaign. We like to present opportunities where the public can be engaged, where we can give people um, direction for that incredible energy that they have for, for, for sharks and for their conservation, um, that we can then demonstrate to politicians, whether that's at a, a, a domestic level, um, whether that's at a member state level or beyond that um, in these high seas treaties, um, that, that the public are interested, the public are concerned. And alongside that, the scientific argument is, is this. So we can work to harness that public passion to engage um, political audiences who, who may not otherwise have sort of, um, you know, they like to know that their constituents see them doing yeah. something yeah. Yeah. positive. And that passion for sharks is enormous. And it's really helped open doors and reinforce that scientific message that we're um, delivering through our meetings with um, decision makers. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, in a rounded campaign, there is always needs to be room for, for, for public engagement. Yes, absolutely. And one one thing, you know, I want to switch gear here a little bit because one of the things that, uh, in particular, uh, is uh, I think relevant for for our listeners here is that that Shark Trust. Uh, openly says about recognizing the role of anglers, uh, mm -hmm. people people who are uh, you know interacting for the want of a better word with sharks for their leisure, uh, even though we, we we know good and well that that interaction you know sometimes ends up not well for a shark. Uh, mm -hmm. Yet you recognize the importance of anglers and you recognize anglers as a stakeholders in sharks let's say in sharks right in having sharks which which is which is quite refreshing and, and it's it's uh, uh you know very encouraging so would you like to uh, uh kind of lay it out for us you know how shark trusts see the role of anglers uh in in overall shark management and engagement yeah. in shark conservation well I mean, the, the trust has, has always been engaged with the angling community since our foundation back in, in the late 1990s. Um, we're based, as, as you mentioned, down in Plymouth in the West Country um, in the UK, and we're very close to the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain, which is based in Cornwall in Lou. And, you know, one, one of the things that, that we talk about is how the anglers in Lou who had... Um, a real, you know, reputation as the place to go shark fishing. The pubs are full of photographs of the sharks hauled up on the quay, you know, for the for those, those big those two hundred pounds porbigals hanging in the yeah, dock. Yeah. Um, but in the mid seventies, they noticed over sort of a one two year period a significant decline in the number of sharks that they were catching, particularly mm. the number of blue sharks. And we're talking almost a 50% decline. And over that period, they took that decision to change their practices to stop catch and kill and to start really focusing on, on catch and release. Mm. Um, and it was the anglers who noticed the change in the, in the population levels before anyone else. Because particularly at that time, sharks were not being recorded um, within fisheries. They weren't a species that was under any management protocol. There was no requirement to record them. And um, even up until you know, the mid-2000s, 
you didn't have to land uh, many species, including all the skates and rays, by species. You could land them as skate and ray. So, you know, with the data that was coming in through the fisheries um, sort of route, we were not picking up on the changes in species assemblage and in the change of catch composition. Um, whereas anglers were seeing, you know, they're fishing year in, year out on the same headland, seeing changes um, in, in population structure and in, in species diversity. And to harness that knowledge is, is incredibly valuable. But we also recognize that the angling community is also incredibly diverse. Some people are members of clubs, some people engage in competitions, some people are out there on their own. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge diversity of attitudes as well towards what's being caught. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've always stated that we believe that many people in the angling community practice responsible fishing. We do still have concern for the, you know, the actions and, and practices of a of what I believe and hope to be a minority group. And that's mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to um, the handling and targeting of large um, threatened species. Mm -hmm. But, you know, going back to the positives, we've created a large number of materials over the years, um, tailored identification guides, uh, recording platforms. We have an app where you can report, re record your catch. We've just partnered with um, a body called Sea Changers and the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain to put out a best practice poster that's gone to um, clubs and vessels, charter, um, charter vessels, to tackle shops, to really encourage the um, appropriate handling of the species, the reporting, um, not um, inboarding, all of these just these key messages that together, working with the angling community, we can uh, work to reinforce um, the, be the best practice there. Yeah. And tell me, what's the what's the importance of the of the shark tagging programs? Because there's a, uh, I, I know there's a, in, in general there are tagging programs that are mainly uh, all those tags are are are, are put in the, in the fish by by anglers, but then mm. they're they retrieved by commercial fishermen, right? So this is this is like all the fish that are tar that are tagged and released. Then uh, we even know about them. When they end up dead somewhere on the, mm. on the, on the is, is tell me what's your view on these programs? Are they important or is it just uh, you know kind of like oh yeah we're tagging sharks it's good. I think what's important is that the, if there is a tagging program that that tagging program is seeking to answer and realistically answer a specific question mm. that the tagging itself isn't being used to justify the fishing. Mm -hmm. So it's important that the anglers are involved in a tagging program that has something to answer, that it's not just a case that, hey, we tagged the shark, therefore we're feeling good, mm -hmm. when actually that tag that is an invasive procedure to an animal, um, it, it's, 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 it has no, no ongoing purpose in, in providing more information or answering a specific question. Mm. Um, and obviously the training that goes with being handed um, a tagging kit is incredibly important yeah. um, because I'm sure the anglers would be um, keen to to know that they're not doing any um, you know any damage to an animal that was going to cause yeah. harm or perhaps even cause it um, its demise. Yeah. So the shark trust doesn't personally manage any tagging programs. Mm -hmm. the, um, there's various shark angling groups. Um, including now a project that's managed, it's been taken over and managed by the, shark, um, the Scottish Shark Angling 
Conservation Network, um, and um, they have various programs running that I'm sure your um, listeners could could look up. Mm-hmm. And so I think the key thing is to make sure that the tags are, if you are involved in a tagging program, that it's contributing to a program that has um, genuine intent, actual scientific um, purpose rather than yeah, just yeah. stick a so piece of plastic into the shark. Yeah, um, but it's helping us learn about the movement or the behavior of that species that can then feed into a process by which we're improving its uh, management or its conservation um, rather than for the sake of it. I think the fact that some of these tags are retrieved by the commercial industry definitely adds a, um, an element to that. Many of the species that are being um, tagged are highly migratory species and mm-hmm. to learn more about their movements um, is it, it, great, it's really important. But alongside the angling activity, there is a great deal of scientific tagging that goes on, um, putting archival tags on, onto species, learning a great deal about how they move, how they move through um, the water column on a daily basis, how they move mm. across the ocean over weeks and months. Um, and, and this can contribute to the understanding of how fishing practices could perhaps be modified yes. in order to help avoid um, the vulnerable species um, or avoid overfishing um, other species. Sure. Um, I have a side question before before we go. Mm-hmm. The side question is like, what's the difference between the race and skates? <laughs> this is a great question because it's a nomenclature issue that we have here in the in particularly in the Northeast Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a specific difference between a skate and a ray. Um, but in in our waters here, we call a lot of skates. Um, we call them rays. So things like um, Raya undulata, an undulate ray, yeah. that, is, that is not a ray, that is a skate. So oh. any of the ratted species are all skates. So one of the key things is that skates lay eggs, which are phenomenally cool things. Mm-hmm. And rays give birth to live young. Yeah. Um, ah. They also, the skates have what's known as a bifurcated pelvic fin. I love that word. You don't get to use it enough. So they have a double-lobed pelvic fin close mm-hmm. to the tail at the back of the disc, um, whereas rays don't. Um, skates have fit; they have fins along their tail, and the skates, sorry, the rays don't. So there is a distinct difference, but we have a huge confusion in terms of nomenclature in this in, in this region, and it's um, it's something that we have not tried to specifically iron out Mm -hmm. because when we um, started working with the skate and ray commercial industry particularly um, to talk about the large skates so the common skates that's now two species the white skate um, the the long-nosed skates and the Norwegian skate um, the black skate it was easier for the industry to talk about voluntary avoidance of those large-bodied species Mm -hmm. they are much larger um, and look then at appropriate retention of some of the smaller ray species so it, it wasn't it, it it wasn't the right thing to do to try and change the way we talk about yes. um, the common names it would introduce more we, confusion more confusion yes we had enough confusion because you know the different common names for a single species from um you know from further north in the northeast atlantic to down here um in the southwest of of, of the UK or on the, yeah. the south coast of Ireland, 
um, is, you know, is crazy. The number of common names is phenomenal. So one of the first things we had to do was to come up with a dictionary of names. So we yes. all knew what species we were talking about. If everyone would talk in scientific names, that would be marvelous. But that's just not. Yeah, that's a, that's a sure way of, of <laughs> making sure that you know what species you're talking about. Use a Latin name. Because yes. then, then you have a nurse hound, and you have different now. You have a big yeah. dogfish. You have this, that. It's like okay, what, what is that? like? Another example is, uh, I think, monkfish. There's like, yeah. you know, we can rattle like a three or four species straight away who are called monkfish, and yet they're completely different. There's some of them not even the same family. But and one of those would also be the angel shark. Yes, so exactly. the angel shark originally called monkfish. And, you know, the Shark Trust works with our colleagues through the Angel Shark Project on um, an, a number of angel shark activities in the northeast Atlantic and into the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, one of the issues, particularly here in, in, in our waters, is the confusion in, in naming. So as angel shark monkfish populations declined, they started landing uh, lophius as monkfish as a replacement, they used to be, you know, what we, we know as monkfish today, that high value uh, bony fish mm-hmm. um, used to be a trash fish. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that, you know, that also masked um, the change in abundance of angel shark yeah. uh, with that, with that, um, with, with the use of monkfish as we know it today um, on the market. So nomenclature has a big part to play. And you mentioned that the, the dogfish um again that is something that we have tried to um to get people to consider the the correct names for because the cat sharks so um you mentioned nurse hounds bullhus so and small spotted cat sharks they are cat sharks they lay eggs they have a far faster um, life history strategy than the dogfish Mm -hmm. which are often deeper water species they mature very late even for, for elasmobranchs produce very low numbers. So now you're talking about fish called Sporodog. That's probably another... Yes, Sporodog and many, many, many other... um, Or spiny dogfish. They're they're different than the cat sharks. Yes. Yes, they are, yeah. And so they need a very different management Mm. um, protocol. So it's really important that we do make sure we all know what we're talking about. That we're talking about... Different yes. or the same species. That's probably one of the first things, like a like a shark angler noticed that there's a lot of confusion, especially in the in the, in the names of these smaller sharks. Mm. And, mm. and listen, speaking about angling, um, could you give us um, some guidance or like a best practices in handling sharks? Uh, once you have your shark on your on your on your uh, you know hook, you 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 brought the shark either to the you know close proximity when you're from the shore or when you're on the boat what are the must do and don't do things uh, when it comes to shark handling i think one of the key things if we are talking about sharks specifically here is to remember that they have no protective rib cage they're cartilaginous species so they really rely on the support of water um you know to 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 protect um their internal organs. So we really discourage the inboarding of sharks unless absolutely necessary. Um, We also really encourage supporting the shark under the stomach. Um, Avoid putting your, it sounds quite obvious, but the number of photos you see of people with their hands in the gills um, or with the shark really drooping. 
Um, oh so, you know, you need to, to support them, support them securely. They are live. They are feisty. They're probably a little frustrated. Um, and so, you know, for your safety and for the shark's welfare, um, if they can be maintained in the water, if that hook can be removed, if you're using circle hooks, preferably, if you're using barbless hooks, that whole process will be um, eased. Um, with regards the the rays and the skates, you know, please do not pick them up by their tail. They need to be held securely in the mid body and at the base of the tail, not by the end of the tail. So you're not hurling them overboard. Um, you're not lifting them upside down by the tail alone. And again, avoid using the spiracles, which appear to be those handy kind of holes behind the eyes. You know, avoid at all costs putting your fingers into those to lift them out. So the positives there are, you know, please attempt not inboard the, the animal. Um, if there is an unavoidable situation, then ensure that it's supported well under the stomach um, and you're securely holding that tail. And if we're talking about skates and rays, you know, hold the animal mid-body by the base of the tail um, to ensure safe okay. release and then lowering into the water. Okay. So, so all those pictures when you see uh, rays being held by the by the by the fins or by the flaps, kind of uh, tail down, that's not good, ray handling. Well, tail tail down is good, but lifting okay. them by the tail up so their head okay. down is, is is bad. Okay, okay. So these are if, some if they're holding if they're holding them, Tommy, tail down just make sure those fingers haven't slipped into the spiracles just for extra grip or the gills on the underside yeah, so the rays yeah. have their gills on the underside. yeah yeah I, I can see that as a you know that that recommend like obviously most people who are uh angling for sharks they want a picture right they want this trophy photo so mm. the recommendation of not get taking them out of the water obviously is like oh how do i get like whatever but um I guess this is all all got, comes down to like, are you are you in for actually having those fish around? And and maybe mm -hmm. that's a good that's a good segue to 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 see like what is the in in your view what is the impact of recreational anglers? Uh, because this is very very often uh, argument raised very often like oh you know uh, leave alone anglers and think about fisheries and all those commercial fisher fishing and this is what's causing a damage and anglers are actually not uh, not have any impact on, on species at all what's your view on that is that a true statement or or, or not <laughs> um i think that you know any angler who is honest who goes out fishing who catches uh, any species shark or otherwise on the end of the hook and then brings them into shore, if they are honest, will understand that that has an impact on that animal. It is not a natural part of that animal's activity. But whether um, there is more gained and more learned um, and through best practice and good handling that we can minimize the impact on those um, on those caught species is, is a different matter. So um, I think that um, it, again, depends on the species that we're talking about. And one of the things that we regularly um, discuss with anglers is that there are restrictions on the commercial industry. So if we talk about poor beagle, um, that's quite an emotive species. Um, it's a it's a, a phenomenal species that we have here in our waters. Grows to you know can grow to over three meters in length. Um, it is critically endangered. It has been 
um, subject to target fishing in previous decades. It was a very high value meat. Um, but it's a species that doesn't mature until it's in its early teens. It has a, a, a small litter of pups after um, sort of a gestation of around eight to nine months. And new evidence suggests possibly it then needs a year's rest period before it can then um, breed again. Now, this species, um, it's the EU fleet is banned from targeting and retention of this species yeah, um, yeah. in globally in international waters so in eu waters and international waters mm -hmm. it is a species that's listed on a large number of wildlife treaties um, in in scotland you can't retain it as an angler um, but in um, in ireland in um, england wales as an angler you can still target the species and you could retain it. Now, we would hope that responsible fishermen, responsible anglers um, would seek to minimise any impact on a species that is critically endangered mm -hmm. and has this very uh, vulnerable life history strategy. But we are seeing an increasing or an apparent increase in the number of charter vessels who are advertising sport fishing for, for beagle. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that, that, that it depends on the species. So, so we, we may talk about... Uh, Specifically, some species of shark and parp eagle is a, is a great place to start because obviously it's a very valuable sport fish, uh, let's say, because of its size, because of its, uh, you know, all the, all the physical properties. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it's critically endangered. There are two populations, I think. Is it, is it like an East and West Atlantic population? Is that how it's divided? Um. I believe so, but I would, I would I'd need to check on that one. I couldn't say that specifically, but they are, you know, there is a population that is um, that has been historically fished off the coast of Canada um, yes. in the West Atlantic. Um, there is um, a population here in the Northeast. So there's so they're different species, right, or different subspecies? They're not different species. No, no, no. They're, they're all poor beagle. Um, in the Pacific, there are salmon sharks, which are very, very closely related, but it's sort of the um, the okay. Pacific equivalent. I always thought that the salmon shark is a is a common name of poor beagle. Even no, no, it's actually a different. It is actually a different species. And Talking about confusion with naming, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And and to be honest, species are changing regularly. The the, the what what science can can show now is incredible. And mm. um, we see species split. We see species amalgamated. Where synonyms are, um, and particularly for species where the numbers are particularly low. Um, mm. And you know people aren't encountering them very often. And then when they compare notes over over different apparent populations, different apparent species, we're finding that actually they're they're one and the same. Yeah. It's just a it's just a disjointed. Sure. Um, so so just population. to go back to to parbigos for a second. So yeah. Um, would you say so? Th this is this is as an angler and as a passionate shark shark angler for for many years. I f I feel like it's difficult to not target a parbigal and 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 target blue shark or like it's it's actually the, the fishing is is not changing at all right so even if you're out there fishing for blue sharks which which mm -hmm. probably are most abundant species of the of a large shark in in, in british waters and in, in, in or northeast atlantic waters around ireland and, and, and great britain mm -hmm. um you you will catch parbigle sharks if they're around. And mm. I think there is a lot of discussion right now because those there was very hard to get parbigle shark. It was like next to impossible. And now we're seeing more and more 
anglers catching parbigal sharks. And obviously there's this big discussion that, oh, the species recovering. Ah, great, we have many parbigal sharks. Versus mm -hmm. like, well, it's just the population displacement and those very few who were somewhere, now they're moving either because of the climate change or whatever else. And now it actually doesn't mean that the fish is in any, big, in the, any better state than it used to be. It's just, you know, more even more vulnerable now, and that's why it's being caught more. So mm -hmm. what's, uh, what's yeah, I'm wondering your, your comments on that, and, and especially on the fact that we see more landings or more catch of parbigal sharks, and also how can you be selective about not catching or, or catching them? Outside, mm -hmm. per, per, perhaps, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to leave it to, to you two. <laughs> Right. Well, I, th I think just as a commercial fisherman knows the best fishing grounds for a certain species, mm. I think many, many anglers and particularly the charter angler vessels know the best grounds for fishing for a certain species. Mm. And there are various locations um, here in, in the southwest, um, whether that's in England here, Wales or, or the southwest of Ireland, where the anglers, where the charter skippers know at certain times of year, they are more likely to encounter poor beagle. So mm -hmm. one of the key avoidances there is to avoid those areas. Mm -hmm. um, I, I myself, and I put my hand up here, Tommy, I'm not an angler. Mm -hmm. So this is not something that I am able to discuss in terms of, you know, well, you should use a different bait. You should fish at a different depth. That's not something that I, I have experience to comment on. But we do know that it is possible to avoid those areas of known aggregation. If you then happen to encounter a species where you've in waters where you've attempted to avoid them, then that's a very different scenario. Mm -hmm. And there's also the difference between sport and catching a fish. So if you're going to play a fish for several hours, or if you're going to bring it alongside with the, you know, the least possible um, struggle, mm -hmm. then then there are there are different scenarios at play there and also if you're going to use mm -hmm. different weight lines if you're going to use different hooks and again yes. i don't want to go into detail here because this is something you know far more about than i do but there are ways to minimize your encounters with species yes. and one of those is to not actively target them so mm -hmm. what we've been seeing in recent years is an apparent increase in the advertising of active targeting of four beagle sharks um, but is it not so, like it's driven because they are actually start showing up more often and, and there there can be some merit behind that advertisement? Is it is it driven by that or is it driven by the fact that vessels can make significant money from taking people out sport fishing? There's mm. a, there's you know, they found a, a market. Yeah. Um, so oh, okay. I, yeah, I, yeah. I I don't think that we, we have the answer to that yet. And the mm -hmm. reason I keep saying apparent is that also with the increased use of social media, um, yes. it, is in, it is increasingly easy to see advertising, to see the results of people out fishing. So mm -hmm. people are posting their videos, people are posting their photographs. So yeah. we can see an increase in the social media exposure of people fishing for poor beagle. Now, this should almost be a non-discussion. Commercial industry are prohibited from targeting and retaining poor beagle. It is a critically endangered species. Yeah. When the time of year that we see large poor beagle in our waters is at the time of year that, that the females who, given the life history strategy we discussed, are likely to be pregnant, yeah. um, then 
you know, responsible anglers, I would hope, would go target something else. You know, they would say, right, these are the months when actually if we want to see poor beagle back in our waters in numbers where it's legitimate to go and target them, Mm -hmm. um, then we need to leave them for however long to see that population effectively recover. Yes. Um, to suggest that the populations now of, you know, and I don't mean to labour this point, of a critically endangered species mm-hmm. are recovered is, um, is, is very concerning and misleading. Mm-hmm. So um, at the moment, our, you know, we've spent a number of years as a shark trust encouraging voluntary avoidance of poor beagle through the months of April through to the summer um, to give these large females the opportunity to safely, um, to safely pup. When we see an increase in engagement of likely a very small number of the whole angling community, yet a large number of charter vessels, yeah. uh, we have to, we have to seek to get stronger um, yeah. protection for the species. Yeah, I think that's that's a quite uh, you know clear message uh, uh, for avo- avoiding uh, poor beagle sharks and because they're critically endangered. I think like I have a, like a two comments to that. So, so first you mentioned like a line and a how how long you're you're going to play the fish and so on and so mm-hmm. for for our listeners uh, really uh, the the message is like use proper uh, line weight use proper rod mm-hmm. so you can land the uh, fish uh, uh, or play the fish as quickly as possible um, and you know I'm guilty myself uh, going totally undergunned for for big big species of, of of shark. It's no fun because even the likelihood of losing the fish uh, if you playing it for a prolonged time is is higher. And I think among anglers this is quite known. Even uh, in a freshwater anglers for uh, fishing for pike for northern pike, uh, I was like, oh, you know you. You're, you're using 30-pound line for pike. It's like overkill. Like, well, yes, but you can, especially when you're fishing in a in the summer months when the water is hot, the fish doesn't doesn't really uh, handle that well, the, the uh, high temp- temperature, do it quickly. At least do not prolong, well, the agony, because let's let's call it spade a spade, right? The fish on the end of the hook being, being kind of, it's, it's in the agony, especially when you take it out of the water. So I think it's a kind of common sense for, like you, like you mentioned, anglers who know uh, what they're doing and they're there for, you know, they want to enjoy the the species and and, and have a welfare of the species mm-hmm. in mind. Um, and as for the for the poor beagle sharks, I think, like you said, the the message is quite clear: don't land them. And um, uh, it's it's interesting. Oh, I know, I know. What was my second thought was you mentioned like if we want to ensure that the population recover and then we can have legitimate, you know, uh, poor beagle angling fishery, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think, uh, this, this is my thinking, like with the absence of the organization who ensures that, that's a little bit hard sell because, um, and I'm always coming back to the, the conservation regulations that are in the United States, which in my view are the best in the world. And, and mm-hmm. you can comment in a second whether you think so or not. But I think that it, whether it comes to the land animals, deer, elk and, and bear, or whether it comes to fishery, America, United States are ahead of, of everybody else. But 
there, there are those organizations who are actually issuing a number of tags. They're scientifically back, backed and backed mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. With these organizations at play, I think it's much easier sell for anglers to say like, well, there's a ban on targeting, let's say for argument's sake, parbigal sharks, right? You can't land them, you can't boat them, you can't you know, fish certain areas. But if we meet those recovery measures, whatever yep. they are, we can open that fishery. And then at least that's a easier sell because there's some organization that oversees that. With the yeah. lack of organization that oversees that, then the question is like, well, who is to decide whether that fishery can be open or not? And who is monitoring that? And yes. and that's much harder sell. No, I, I, I agree with you completely on all of the points that you, you've, just, um, you've just raised there, Tommy. So, um, and thank you for, for sort of picking up on... on the aspects of angling that I'm not in a position to to, to discuss, so that that's fantastic. But I, I agree with you that you need to have um, the responsible body who are in a position to say, this is the current circumstance for this species, these are the management measures required to enable recovery, and to then implement those and enforce those. And almost more importantly, ensure that people know about them. Um, so often, and this is this is a problem globally, you can have um, the best regulation, but if it sits on a piece of paper and isn't um, the community it's aimed at aren't educated to its existence or to the requirement or, or to why it's necessary, um, you're not going to get um, effective compliance with that regulation. So um, a great deal of the work that we do at the Shark Trust is about informing people of the regulations that exist. We produce fisheries advisory materials, we produce angler advisory materials, we work with stakeholder groups, governments, really often introducing them to regulations and to the species covered by those regulations um, so that they're in in an informed position to educate their um, industries. And and this, it sounds very simple, but often these basic steps are, are, are what are required. Um, so that people are are fully aware and also then have no excuse if those species are landed. So if you have been informed, if you have got resources, if you have been educated and yet you still do something, then that's not through lack of knowledge, that's through intent. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that goes for many, many species. Um, but, you know, the, the Shout Trust will continue to seek um, stronger protection for poor beagle shark in their critically endangered state. Um, we will continue to ask the anglers um, currently, because there is no um, legal framework for this, but um, voluntarily avoid poor beagle um, through those months from sort of March, April through into the summer. Um, and, you know, we feel that that would be a hugely constructive step. And we are talking with. Um, representatives of the angling community of various angling bodies Mm -hmm. at least here in the UK about this and I think that is incredibly constructive that we all sit down and discuss a way to take this forward um, effectively yes absolutely and I think that what you said is it's a it's a good time to uh, bring the quote I think it's from Aldo Leopold that ethical thing to do is uh, to 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 not do the not think that is not right even if it's legal 
So I think yeah. this is this is this is this is perfectly can be applied yeah. to Portugal sharks. Like the right thing to do, like being ethical, so do the right thing, and right thing is to not to take Portugal, even if it's legal, because of the of the status of the species. Yeah. Listen, Ali, there's yeah. one more. Um, oh, there's a much more uh, species of shark that I would like to discuss with you, but I know don't know how you how you're uh, you know for time. But there's one species and and that I particularly would like to. Uh, touch on and this is six gill shark um oh. and, and we see there is a fishery for six gill sharks and there's a quite mixed feelings about whether these this these sharks should be targeted whether it shouldn't be targeted uh other you know what's their status they're near threatened they're they're data deficient um what what's the what's the what's your view on that and on the on the whole whole deal of uh, angling for six gill sharks Wow. Well, angling for six-gill sharks is is um, slightly different from commercial fisheries for six-gill sharks. Um, I mean, commercially, anything that that's a, a deep water species has a very restrictive life history strategy. So I think we need to to look at this with concern. And I would believe, and I'm just looking at our um, fisheries advisories, all these materials are obviously available on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, we have advisory cards for the deep water sharks, and there are a number of species that are um, listed on this. And I'm just flicking through these cards, looking for the, um, looking for the one on deep water sharks. And there are uh, two different regulations. Um, so all of the central forests are covered. Um, the blunt nose sitzgill, so mm-hmm. it's prohibited. It's prohibited commercially to fish for blunt nose sitzgill um, around the whole coast of, of Ireland from the Bristol, sorry, from the English Channel um, west, and um, that's a really important piece of regulation to protect these, as I've said, you know, slow-growing, slow life history strategy species. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go back to our example of of the poor beagle, mm-hmm. if there's a reason why commercial industry have been prohibited from targeting these species. Um, I know the anglers have a reduced impact on this this population than commercial fishing would, um, but I think the question has to be asked as to the relevance of bringing a deep water shark up to the surface um, mm-hmm. and, and what that you know what that benefits. Yeah. That's in, you see, and this is quite interesting thing, I, and I just love to to discussing this because the six gill fishery that I'm aware of, they're actually not in the deep water; they're quite shallow water, close mm. to uh, mm. close to the close to the shore. So, and obviously, that's not the shark that you're gonna boat because it's size of mm-hmm. the boat. So, so, yeah. uh, and and I had that conversation not not, not long ago whether. You know whether there there should be banned, we shouldn't target them, we should target them, and and like as as usual, there is a contradicting information. And I can you know, on one hand, it's you know it's prohibited from uh, commercial exploitation. On the other hand, you have the shark who is like on quite shallow water. You're not gonna boat it. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, you would think that the impact on on that shark is quite quite low and its mm. conservation status is near threatened which is well maybe that's you you're going to tell whether near threatened is actually means good in the air quotes or means no leave it alone 
So that's that's what I'm kind of inquiring because that's uh, a lot of information, kind of a lot of confusion of like what what particular pieces of information really means for the yeah. status of the yeah. shark. Well, I mean, one of the, the key things that we do have to do, and I think everybody is is guilty in some way of doing this, is is coupling the IUCN red list status to um, expected management. So the red list status is an expression of the population status um, based on the best available scientific information and in, informed opinion. Um, and a lot of these statuses are changing at the moment. Um, the global listings are changing. Um, there was a, a set of species released in uh, March. There'll be another set in July. And as we learn more and more about these species, um, it's possible to create and, and publish better informed um, information on them and to ensure that their status is appropriately reflected. Um, if a species is, is critically endangered, there is a reason that, that it has been given, or if it's endangered or near threatened, vulnerable, whatever, um, there's a reason it's been given that status. And, and that information should then help inform um, appropriate management. What there isn't is an automatic, and I, I believe you don't think this, Tommy, but it's, it's a misunderstanding with, with um, many other people that if you are a threatened species, if you are vulnerable or endangered or critically endangered, that there is an automatic um, management trigger as mm -hmm. such. So um, we also need to look at the fact that if the global status of a population is, um, here we have something that's, that's um, near threatened, um, it might be that that local population has a different status. Mm -hmm. So it, it's about taking... Um, taking each population in its own its own right and considering the responsible action of what you're involved in. Now, I, I can't say that I know enough about that particular um, six-gill fishery, the angling activity that's going on there. I, I'm intrigued and I'd like to know more about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, beyond that, I can't pass opinion on on, on the, whether it's uh, appropriate or not. It is it is legal. Um, and then it comes down, as we've discussed, to the anglers and that great quote you just had, um, to decide if it is the right thing to be doing. Yeah. So for, for our, our, our listeners interested, it was uh, episode 41, uh, when uh, my guest on the podcast was one of the skippers who are actually uh, even goes by a nickname, Mr. Sigsgill. Um, wow! <laughs> so, yeah, so, so that's uh, that's where where that conversation came from. Yeah. Um, well, I think we'll be sending Mr. Sixgill some of our um, our best practice and handling guides, and hoping that he is already um, exhibiting best practice. Tools yeah, yeah. Well. No, no. The, 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 this is this is actually a man I know well, and and I spent countless hours uh, shark fishing with him. And yeah. uh, those fish are, are never boated. And Tommy, one of the things we'd encourage all of your listeners, and particularly the anglers out there, is mm -hmm. to record your catch, not just in your own logbooks or with your own angling club, if you're a member of one, but really to let us know um, the diversity of species out there. It's fascinating. The anglers, um, the anglers, the divers, those people who are actually on or in the water are having those encounters with sharks that, um, that we don't have. We, you know, we're working here in policy or we may be working on a fish market, but those live encounters with these species and the passion that these people have for these species is phenomenal. And it, it really, um, the, the knowledge of what's being caught, when and where, really feeds into an improved understanding um, of the species. So 
you know, these records are really important. We never expect anglers to um, divulge their marks. Um, we work in larger sea areas so that we can have an understanding of species distribution, but not expose any marks, um, you know, either to other anglers or even, you know, there's concerns that they would be I wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned to, ex to expose the marks to scientists, like maybe for other anglers, yes. <laughs> but for, I think, so there is a way, so... Uh, Anglers can record their catch on Shark Trust website. Mm -hmm. uh, or, a, or using our app, yeah. Or using or using your app, and that's it. Um, okay, um, Ali, listen, that's that's been very informative and uh, and really fascinating uh, discussion. Um, tell me, have we touched on everything that you were hoping that we're going to touch, or did I oh. miss anything? Did I leave anything out? And if I did, please feel free to. Uh, now uh, talk about what I missed. I, th I think one of the things that I'd just like to bring up, and we've, we've mentioned it in passing, but while um, while some of the family are out angling um, and the rest of the family still want to be outdoors um, doing things, then obviously involving yourselves um, wherever you are in the world, in fact, in the great egg case hunt is a fantastic thing to do. So searching the strand line on the beach um, for the egg cases of um, skates and rays, of oviparous sharks, and by finding those egg cases and recording your finds, and there's all sorts of identification materials online. Um, there's links to our, our sister projects in different countries. So, for example, in, in Ireland, where um, there's Per Search Island through Marine Dimensions, they take recordings. In Portugal, we're engaged with um, NGOs there in France. We have colleagues who are, are recording um, egg cases and, and, and beyond Europe as well. We're keen to see egg cases from um, any anywhere you happen to encounter them. Um, it's a, a fantastic, um, exciting citizen science project that is really showing and, and teaching us a great deal about the distribution of these species. It highlights um, helps pinpoint information on the only static um, life history phase of skates, rays, and egg-laying sharks, which can feed into management processes like protected areas. Um, and it, it's fascinating. It allows, at any time of the year, um, anyone who is able to walk um, down a strand line on a beach to engage in shark conservation. You don't have to be a diver. You don't have to go out to sea or stand on a, a promontory and fish for, for mm. sharks and rays. You can walk on that strand line um, and find this kind of treasure in the form of, of shark yeah. and ray egg cases. And there's an app for all that one. Yeah, and like we said, it's a fantastic, and you wish that even for, for the whole family, you know, even take care of kids and, and just go and like educational aspect mm. of it. Like, what are those things that are lying yeah. on the strand? Like, what are they? You know, I, I, I think one of the episodes of the podcast. Uh, I had a, like a marine scientist, and she was. Uh, she said that some people were asking, like, why you have bats in there? You know, they're, no, no, they're not bats. They're actually, you know, eggs, and it's fantastic uh, activity. And 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 you know, we can learn a lot, and the, and the kids can learn a lot about nature that surrounds us. And and that's mm. that's that's a that's a fantastic thing because. Once you once you learn about something, you might get excited about it, and when you're excited yeah. about something, then you want to protect it. And, yes, and I guess exactly. This is... And it's it's that way to connect the public here in the Northeast Atlantic with something that's all too often.
portrayed in warm, blue, sunnier waters. Mm -hmm. um, we have a phenomenal diversity of sharks, skates and rays in, in our waters here in the Northeast Atlantic, over 80 species. Um, a number of those lay eggs that wash up on the beach. And on the Irish coastline, you have a chance to find some of the rarer species as well, um, the white skate, um, mm -hmm. flapper skate, blue skate. You know, that it, it's... it's um, a very addictive pastime, not just for not just for young people. Um, and um, egg cases have no secondary use on the strand line, so we can feel fine about collecting them. Um, and yeah, they're just phenomenally fabulous things. So we encourage everybody just to get involved in shark conservation in any way, to use our, our website resources, um, to contact us if you have any. What's contact. the website? What's the website address? Sharktrust.org. And for egg cases, you can go straight to eggcase.org or give us a shout on social media and we'll help you out. That's perfect. That's perfect. Ali, I have one more question that I would love to ask you. Mm, go for what's, it. The, what's the status and, or maybe what are the hopes about mako sharks in, in British waters? Because as in far as I'm concerned, the last one was caught in the 70s, I think in 72. Oh, okay. Um, but they used to be like a great uh, fishery, especially sport fishery for ang anglers were catching mako sharks. And I was actually uh, reading that book. This is how it all started, my membership with Shark Trust. I, I read the book of uh, uh, Richard Paris, which I th think was one of the founders of Shark Trust, uh, Sharks in British Seas. And then I mm -hmm. read there like fantastic stories about uh, great shark angling competitions where where people were you know angling for mako sharks, and blue sharks were actually considered a, a pest or something like oh you know mm -hmm. another blue shark at the one that you know, because they were all for mako sharks, but obviously all those mako sharks were ending up uh, you know hung by their tail in the dock, and so in seventies they're gone. Is there is there any chance that within next i don't know 10 20 50 100 years we'll have mako sharks back uh, well um tommy you've touched on one of the species that is takes up a lot of my work at the moment um and a lot of the work of uh, the shark trust no limits campaign um short fin mako specifically there's two species long fin far rarer far less encountered than the short fin mako um, shortfin mako are still uh, a highly prized um, commercial fish. Mm -hmm. They have a high market value. They're um, caught for their meat. And again, people um, often overlook the fact that sharks are caught for their meat as a significant driver um, of shark fisheries, commercial shark fisheries. Mm -hmm. um, and their fins are also valued in trade. Now, shortfin mako in the north, Atlantic, their populations have declined um, dramatically. These are exceptionally vulnerable species. Um, their status has been um, uplisted to endangered um, this, just this last year. And for many years, there has been calls for um, management of the species in the Atlantic, um, that the level of overfishing is um, just way too high, causing this this significant population decline and again coming back to the beginning of our conversation European fleets have a great deal to, to play in, in this process they're catching the vast majority of short fin mako so the shark trust working with our shark lead colleagues um, have been 
um, pushing for a number of years now um, to secure effective binding recommendations on the commercial fisheries in the, in the North Atlantic. And um, in 2017, we were part of um, an effort that secured a binding recommendation requiring um, vessels in the North Atlantic to release any mako that came to the vessel side alive. Mm -hmm. So um, this was the start of a process of reducing overfishing. The population was identified at a stock assessment as overfished, with overfishing continuing, which is not a good thing. That um, if the population, if a prohibition was put on that fishery from that date in 2000, late 2017, that by 2040, there would only be a 54% chance that that population had recovered. Oh. Um, the, key, the key thing there being that a prohibition alone, again, something we've touched on, is not enough. You need to avoid that species. You need to have behavior change that ensures that any any animal that's put back is put back with the greatest chance of survival. We know that they have um, around a 70% chance of survival on release, which is, which is good, but we need that to be even better. Um, and the trust and our colleagues continue to engage in, in the meetings that happen between the, the big annual meetings of these fisheries bodies and we continue to um, encourage scientific engagement to ensure that the advice that comes out of these meetings is as tight and as clear as possible so that when we then face that the, in this case 53 um, fishing parties that that are involved in in the Atlantic um, that the case that is put to them and the case that we can discuss with governments and with the EU is as strong and as clear as possible that this species needs the strictest protection available if we are to, to see Mako given any chance of, of recovery in the North Atlantic and also in the South, because um, you know the lessons from the North apply to the population in the South. Um, that population is not quite as, um, as as challenged at this time, but you know it, it can go that way. Sharks suffer from this um, from boom bust, the impacts of boom bust fisheries and you know, Mako is one that has been overlooked for, for decades and now these industries must take really strong steps um, to ensure this population has an opportunity to recover. And I hope then you would see, Tommy, more short for Mako in UK waters. Um, so there is a reason why you're seeing less and hearing less. I mean, I have heard of the odd Mako caught by anglers in recent years. Really? Um, but really? At, yeah, yeah, yeah. Out there on the high seas, though, it is essential. Um, and, and, you know, this twins with studies that are going on, um, you know, look, looking at, at what's being caught by, um, by anglers, looking on, looking at, um, you know, post-release survival and things like that. It's really essential that we understand that, but it's also essential that we curb this pressure. So whereas I said the commercial fisheries for poor beagle have been prohibited, that is not the same with the NAPO, and we're working very hard. Um, through our No Limits campaign to deliver um, effective management for NATO. That's the most frustrating thing, that when you have a critically endangered species, uh, which population collapses and they're still exploited commercially. How it's possible? To be clear, MAKO, uh, they're endangered. Um, they haven't quite reached that critically endangered status, um, but that is not a positive situation to see them in. They're also um, a species that's been proposed for listing on the CITES, on the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Mm -hmm. And the Conference of Parties for CITES um, 
is later this year. Um, and so there is a move to encourage um, trade uh, restrictions for MAKO. Um, and to implement those trade restrictions effectively, we would need to see fisheries management um, adopted effective catch limits. So there, there is a thread that goes through a lot of what I tend to talk about. I mean, that's effective fisheries management, the implementation of catch limits. So ensuring what, what's out there and what's being caught is caught in a sustainable fashion. And whether that's by commercial industry or it's by the recreational community, um, all of this needs to work towards the greatest level of sustainability. Um, and, you know, just to make sure that we have these species going forwards and that those populations are in the, the best state exactly. they can be. Exactly. Ali, listen, uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, and I wish you and, and the whole crew at Shark Trust and all your partners uh, everything best for in your work. Uh, you, you're doing Thank a you. fantastic job and fantastic work for uh, benefit of us all, really, and uh, for the health of the ocean, because we know how important sharks are for the health of the ocean. Mm. Um, so so that's absolutely fantastic job um, tell us how people can get involved and, and how can how they can support uh, Shark Trust and that fabulous job that you're doing <laughs> uh, well, well thank you um, I mean we are a membership organisation so you can, you can join us and support us through your memberships and through donations and fundraising um, everything we do we have to raise the funds to achieve and one of the most important thing is being able to turn up and speak up at these fisheries meetings. The commercial industry will be there. And if there is no counterpoint to the commercial industry, then um, we can't move forwards with conservation for these species. So that's really important to become a member, to support the work we do, to understand that we are very efficient with the, with the use of our, of our funds as an organisation. Um, to, to join us in our citizen science work, you know, become a citizen scientist, engage in the great egg case hunt, record your, your catches as an angler, um, in, engage in discussion on social media. So I think really it's about um, getting involved, getting involved at whatever level is the right one for you, whether it's um, becoming a member of the trust, receiving our magazine, engaging that way, or, or just, you know, getting out on the beaches and becoming a, a citizen scientist and um, increasing your passion and knowledge for um, these fantastic species. There's lots of ways you can get involved, and if you're short of ideas, drop us a line, and we'll 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 help you along. That's great, uh, Ali. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Tommy. Great to speak to you. You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy Saldor's Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.